Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Jeff Coyle, Chief Product Officer and co-founder of MarketMuse. MarketMuse uses AI technology to help the content planning, creation, and optimization. With Jeff, we talked a lot about feedback. Product managers are constantly encouraged to get feedback from everyone around them, as well as their customers. But Jeff brings up the context to where that feedback comes from. This got me to thinking, how often are we asking for feedback? And are we prompting the answers? Are we asking the right people? How often is it really unbiased feedback? You know, product managers could talk to multiple people a day, and it really wouldn't matter if they weren't asking the right questions, really critically listening, or digging deep enough for those answers that really count. But, you know, as Jeff says, feedback adds a striking perspective on where the ball should be going. Well, enough for me, let's kick this off, and afterwards, Tweet at me at eBodak or shoot me a note at eBodak at pendo.io and tell me what you think. Well, welcome over to product. Today, I have Jeff Coyle, co-founder and chief product officer from MarketMuse. Jeff, welcome. Hi, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. So why don't we kick things off with you giving us a little overview of your background? Oh, yeah, sure. So my background, I going back to school, I went to school in Georgia Tech for computer science uh, with a specialization in usability. My background, you know, really worked for a number of startups as well as companies who were public companies. So early on in about 99, 2000, I was an early employee at a company called Knowledge Storm. Uh, Knowledge Storm was one of the first companies to embrace the concept of building leads and generating leads for B2B technology companies via the web. So we were selling leads to software companies back when large, even large B2B tech companies didn't even have white papers, building networks of websites and products focused on lead generation. In 2007, we were acquired by Tech Target, which is one of the largest B2B technology online publishers, who, in addition to focusing on lead generation, they also have a suite of, of data offerings. Uh, so they were selling data before it was a thing. And I ran the in-house teams for generating traffic, search, and engagement, and also was uh, instrumental in a number of the product management and product launches connected to those companies. Early on in uh, when Market Music first started out, when just really was getting into the development side, I was at Tech Target and I was actually one of their first customers. Free launch, uh, effectively, when they were just a data feed, early stage of the user experience. I had identified this problem in the market years prior and had been trying to figure out was there anyone with the artificial intelligence capabilities that you know, the, the two original founders of, of Market Muse had. And I, you know, used it, used Market Muse in its earliest state and it immediately was successful. So after leaving Tech Target, they had asked me to come on as a late co-founder. And then we took the product to market soon after. And so that that's kind of the story of how it began in uh, October 2015. So, so how late of a co-founder were you? Um, you know, uh, as far as uh, sales into the market, 
it was almost zero, a very small number of, of, of customers at the time when I came on. But as far as it, it being in research phase, part-time from my, my co-founder, uh, about a year-ish of, of just going from idea to something that was marketable. So, Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's a good model. And I, I think it's great to treat people, especially if they jump on board a, a technology that's just getting ready for commercialization mm-hmm. you know, as a co-founder, as one of the first business guys that are there, right? Yeah, it was definitely where I had been working on these specific problems for so long, about 16 years at the time when I found Aki, my uh, my co-founder. And it was, it was a perfect fit. It was basically, he said, you understand this and the actual applications of this technology better than anyone. I mean, we have to team up and make this happen. Uh, after I left, I was working for a private equity firm for a short period of time in their marketing services organization. And he came back to me and said, Hey, let's, let's go for this. And then hey, the rest is, uh, is history. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, congratulations. Yeah, so thank you, you. you have a ton of marketing experience. How has that background helped you as a product leader? In, in this specific case, I think, I think if I was, if I was building products in any other space, I might be more suited to be almost a, a chief marketing officer of a different type of technology company and influencing product. But because we are focused on specifically marketing technology and my background in product management and marketing makes it a fit that I can guide kind of product vision on this side. My background, you know, coming from a computer science background and usability usability theory background. My goals in, in, in business were always focused on you know, how, how do search engines work effectively? How can and how is the puck moving from the standpoint of generating traffic for websites, whether it's paid, whether it's you know, social, whether it's organic search, you know, come clicks on, on search engines. How do we build a, a strong portfolio of different traffic avenues for our sites and segments, getting into user intent and segmentation? So that was always my, you know, my role in business and in, in the companies that I worked for. So the, the ability to come at it as the subject matter expert who's also managed a lot of products gives, you know, that, that's really the unique is in a unique position that I have at Market Muse, being able to say, hey, I've done this before. I've done this manually. You folks are artificial intelligence experts. I don't have that level of expertise in you know, natural language generation, natural language understanding, and machine learning and AI. But this is the problem that everyone has in this space, whether they know it or whether they don't. Is there a way to make this easier? And that's the question I constantly ask my engineering team, I constantly ask my data science team is to say like, this is actually the mistake that's happening. And maybe the market doesn't even know it. Is there a way for us to make that simple, to make it seem easy with this new technology innovation? So I'm constantly pushing pushing them to say, you know, we're not doing me too product management. We're doing something that nobody's done before every time we're putting something out there. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important not to be that me too product manager. Mm-hmm. You know, so often I, I, I talk to especially younger PMs that are more worried about competition as opposed to customer demand. Well, and it's also watching, I mean, if you're worried about competition, I always like to worry, look at their cycles. I mean, you can see as things launch, how fast are they moving? I want to move faster, no matter what, whether it's in, you know, changing scope, whether it's changing, you know, team members to, to add on, you know, people with specific skill sets. It's if I know how fast you move, I can always 
somehow move faster. Um, that's the way that we always think about things. And that's how we're able to move, you know, as we think, you know, three or four X faster than anyone doing anything close to what we're doing, regardless of the size of their teams. So. Yeah. Speaking of moving faster, I heard a lot of interesting things about your experiences building marketing muse or market. Muse. <laughs> yeah. Can you take me through the story of building the product? Yeah, certainly. Um, so from the earliest standpoint, when I came on to Mark Muse as, as a co-founder, my, my co-founder Aki was really focused on engineering and product. So the initial offering was a, uh, a collection of one-page applications. One our original flagship product was called Content Analyzer. So what Content Analyzer would do, we would look at one page of content and tell you how comprehensive and high quality it is. So how relevant is it to the concept that you're researching? So it was giving a real quantifiable or, or, or you know, quantified measure of something nobody else had ever done, which is to say, this exhibits the signals that which a subject matter expert would have exhibited if they had written this piece of content. And so what we did at the, by having Content Analyzer as a flagship product, all the other types of challenges that, you know, that clients had that at the site level or the you know, business strategy or, or content strategy side, we filled the gaps in behind the scenes with maybe scripts or other types of things. But we had this you know, software as a service offering that was a one-page analysis application. But we always knew that the goal was to build an end-to-end platform that looked at an entire network or an entire site. So the evolution for the business was to generate this one page application that really focused on one, you know, looking at one piece of content, looking at one topic. Our next phase of evolution was what we marketing use content briefs. So what marketing use content briefs are, are uh, basically an instruction set or a recipe for a writer, giving them an automated outline that says, if you're going to cover this topic, well, here's how market Muse believes you would get it done. You put out the most competitive, the highest quality content item on any particular topic, whether it's, you know, something like CRM software or how do you fix a clogged drain pipe? You know, really anywhere in between. How can I today, considering what I have on my current site, considering what the competitive landscape looks like, how can I build a great outline for that writer at that time when they need it to be able to hand it off, have a shared sense of, of what's expected of me as a writer? So that when I execute it, I know that my draft is hitting the mark on what's being proposed by the strategist, by the marketing lead, or by the editorial lead. And so we went from the one-page application to being able to deliver these automated content briefs at scale. And then the third phase of, of Market Muse was where we are today with Market Muse Suite. And so Market Muse Suite brings those content briefs into the platform. It allows you to request them as a function of looking at your entire site or your entire network. So you can say, oh, this is clearly my content gap that I need to fill. Let me request my content brief, get it inside the application. And then we've supported that function, you know, building that content plan, getting those content briefs. We've supported that with a series of applications that are common workflow challenges for writers and strategists and search engine optimization professionals. Uh, Anything from doing research in a market or a topic competitive analysis, understanding your existing inventory to to where I should link common pages, where I should link related pages together, common questions that my users may have. We've even built the first application in the market that addresses news content. 
Uh, so for publishers who are trying to put out the most compelling, differentiated news content on a topic that's breaking, how can I instruct the market on, on ways to do that in a way that is both you know, equal to or even better than anyone else that's covered those topics? So the, market, the product evolution has gone from being you know, one page, one page plus another level of interpreted data to now an entire suite that speaks to the most common challenges and workflows of content strategy, content marketing, and search engine optimization teams. So one complaint I hear a lot from CEOs about product leaders is their over-reliance on past experiences and, and how that can lead to bias, right? So, oh, yes. <laughs> now, you guys have a, have a philosophy or a methodology. Talk to me about how you use user interface decisions combined with you know user interface decisions based on data and customer engagement rather than you know, kind of what typically might be hunches, complaints, historical bias, right? No, that, that's a great question. A big piece of, you know, it's tough. And I'll, I'll just mention it. It's tough when you are kind of a subject matter expert and also running product or managing product. It's hard to not be biased by the historical lens of companies you've worked for or something you know to be true in your eyes. It's equally hard to manage priorities in that scenario as it is to manage against negative feedback or a vocal minority or things like that. So what we do at Market Muse is we ensure that people are speaking from experience, absolutely. And the feedback that we're hearing are from people that have given us time, they've given us you know, money in some, in some way, shape, and form, whether it is a... Uh, uh, that they are a customer or they are spending effort that we know is valuable and effectively their reputation. So in one way, shape or another, is this person providing all of those things when they're giving that feedback? And is it speaking from experience and not just speculation? We find that if you take on that time, money, reputation and speaking from experience and merge those things together, it eliminates a lot of bias. Oh, back when we used to do this at our company, we used to do this or we had this terrible process at XYZ company where we had to submit tickets this way. Well, that's all great for moment in time observations, but it's not something that can run an entire, you know, a collection of overall prioritization. So if we've, only, if we've only got maybe one of those factors in mind, or we've got someone that is speculating, it's noting that and, and you know, still taking that feedback and still taking that information when we're, when we're prioritizing. And, but, but sure, noting it as a hunch is as valuable as anything. Uh, because some hunches are fantastic. And so it's not that discrediting nature. Uh, it's, it's, it's about, hey, bring it all, but we're going to organize it in, in, in buckets. And we don't want to make it hard for you. And we don't want to make it invalidating for you to provide these insights. A, a lot of times in organizations, they make it so hard to give, you know, oh, you've got to put it in this format. It's got to be done in this way. You know, give it in any format you want. Record yourself talking into your phone. We have, a, we have a, a, a thing that you can actually record a video of yourself talking because a lot of people just can't get it written in there. You know, trying to make it as easy as possible to provide any type of input, but also everybody have a shared understanding that not all inputs are going to be valued equally, whether it's you know, from you know, the fact that you did a demo for your, for your mom last weekend and she didn't understand this feature. You know, that's, that's interesting input. Uh, we're going to apply it in the way that it, it, it should be applied. I mean, that's great for a particular type of audience targeting and, and et cetera. I'm going to probably want to know more, but that's the way we do it to try to eliminate these bias. Because, you know, especially the last, the one thing I'll mention also is 
where are you at the time you're giving that feedback? Was it after a really bad customer support call? Was it after a, a failed sales pitch? Was it after some other bad thing going on? If I get some piece of feedback that seems charged, I always like to figure out where is it coming from? Because that can really add bias too. And, and so there's, there's a, or you typically a round of feedback whenever something comes in that's like a striking change, a striking perspective on where the ball should be going. So I think that product managers should always be not asking questions to discourage, but asking questions to make sure that they understand the whole picture, where it's coming from, as well as making sure that the voices they hear are ones who are, you know, putting their reputation on the line uh, every day for the business in one way, shape or form. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little farther, the whole concept of how you approach feedback and how you incorporate it into, back into your product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that it, I think it requires you to have both two wings. One is I think it requires you to have a strong, you know, customer success perspective in order to even want to start getting online or web-based feedback. I think you've got to, you know, you got to understand that these are humans in most cases who are using your technology and those humans make up accounts or, or businesses that work for you or individuals. So many times I hear, you know, that, that people are only looking at customer success from an account perspective and not looking at the individual participants. I think that's the foundation of, of doing great feedback loop management is to say that these are people. These are people who have problems. They have, you know, liabilities at work. They have liabilities outside of work and they have roles on teams um, and they bubble up. So before I think you can ever get into effectively managing and taking feedback, you've got to kind of have empathy for these users. You have empathy for the people who you're working with. Try do your best. At least somebody on in your company needs to understand them, why they're doing what they're doing, who they are, what their roles are, what their businesses do as best as they can at scale. Um, you know, at some level, you've got to have that level of understanding documented, whether it's an account plan, whether it's some auxiliary third-party research to be able to say that this feedback is coming from this type of person. And it sounds, it sounds like it's very difficult, but it can, those types of things can be done at scale to provide that additional level of value. So without that approach, and you know, a lot of times teams will never even get to in-application feedback loops because they're just going to start looking for common errors or they're going to start look for common you know, threads. They're not going to be able to segment these users, segment the companies that they're working for. Is this a large company? Is this a medium company? Is this somebody who has a high level of sophistication? Is this somebody that doesn't? And that's why I feel you know, my bias perspective is that a lot of marketing technology applications really focus on those expert users only and the feedback that they provide because they you know, tend to be very vocal early on. So in our, in our case, what we like to do is ensure that if we're going to use data at the small scale or the individual action, there's a human face behind it. And it's not just Joe, the marketer persona. It's Jeff Coyle from MarketMuse and how he uses this and why. If you're going to take small-scale feedback and make business decisions, I think it is the most important thing you can do is, is really know as much as you can about the customer, what their desired outcome is, which is obviously the, the core principle of customer success. At a larger scale, I think that the, you know, when you're looking at general trends, that's when you can get a little bit more you know, on the, on the macro level. You're looking at adoption rates. You're looking at how, where do commonly people start? 
in their experience? Where are they having troubles? Where are they having stall points? Where are they having rage clicks? Whatever it is you classify, you know, where they typically hit the help, help button, those type of actions. So I think that there's a, a very happy, you know, combination of those two things to say, this is how we're doing generally. This is how the, pro- the platform is doing. Here's how each individual application is doing. Why is that happening? Is it because wayfinding is a problem or there's usability issues? Is it because we haven't educated the market? Is it because we're ahead of the market and we've developed when we should have been, uh, you know, developing something at a different level of maturity? And then at the individual on the small scale feedback loop, I, I think that the, the secret to that is knowing more about the source of the feedback and trying to get, dig in deep. I'll give you a great, a great example of that. Some of our earliest feedback about our original product was, hey, this feels like it's a gym membership for really high expert people only. Like I feel excluded when I jump in here. And so we had basically, you know, dove in and tried to dig in. Why do you feel that way? Oh, because if I didn't know this workflow already, oh, because if I didn't already know how to take this data and turn it into action, I couldn't use this. And so interviewing, getting into the minds of somebody who knows that this is too much of an expert product and knows that there's you know, some sort of workflow out there that might not be being addressed is a great example of this. How you know that you've matured against that is recent conversations that I have with customers who are, I consider to be dramatic experts. Now they want things like, ooh, can I queue up requests? I'm getting exactly what I want. I want to queue them up because I don't want to actually have to do stuff. Can I do macros against this? Can I queue up requests? Can I get bulk access? That's when you know you've, you've made a progress. Uh, a progress when you're that class of user that is you consider to be an expert. Before they're saying there's holes, now they want efficiency gains. And those are the types of uh, levels of maturity you're looking for with common users, with common uh, user groups or segments versus at the high level, you're looking at something like, at, you know, at a macro level, a large scale feedback, you're looking at something and saying, oh, well, not a lot of people are using this application. Is there a reason for it? Is there, do we need to publicize it more? Do we need to educate on use cases? Do we need to have more in-app prompting or education mode type approaches? So that's the two ways that any organization can level up. And, you know, one, one is just knowing their users, knowing who they are. You may only have users that are experts. You may have a wide range. If you build for one, you're going to alienate the other. So that leads us to health in some ways, right? Taking yeah. feedback, incorporating it, and using it to refine your product and, and measuring it leads us to the health of your customers. How do you measure health? From a standpoint of you know, the platform usage, we have a customer success health methodology. And a component of that is software platform. So I'll I'll speak about it from a customer success perspective. First is things like, is everyone who we're communicating with engaged? Have they gone through what we, you know, let's just say they're our newer customer. Have they gone through onboarding? Have they gone through training? Was it successful? Have there been any negative, negative success vectors? And so we have a combination of math that we go through to say, all of these things were successful. So the likelihood of them having platform success is very high. When we are in Market Muse, uh, you're talking about the platform, it's a combination of that kind of general account-focused individual research that we track in, in our customer success and, and CRM systems and combining that with platform health indicators that we, and we use kind of what many, many of you would be very familiar with, which is kind of the heart 
methodology of happiness, engagement, adoption, retention, and task success. So what happiness is really, we're looking at, you know, things like NPS. A lot of people will have, I, I talk to product organizations, they only track with NPS, which shocks me. But what we're looking at is, you know, we do have, you know, in-application surveys, manual surveys, how many successful interactions have been completed? How can we draw that and combine it with our customer success methodology? Can we look at engagement? So visits, not just per user, but also for accounts. So at a user level engagement, account level engagement, some you know tactics used by customer success in there is to say, if you've got some really engaged users in that account and you've got some that are not very engaged, what can we do to change that scenario and make it so that there's, you know, maybe we've got a champion that we haven't identified who could influence some of those less engaged users. You know, adoption's you know, relatively obvious. Are they using it? <laughs> in our case, it's adoption of our new platform versus our old one, but not everybody's going to be in that scenario. Uh, sometimes we're we'll going to be looking at adoption of features. Sometimes we're we'll going to be looking at just general general adoption after an onboarding process. And so I think with adoption, one thing people leave out is that you're looking for people to adopt it, but they're not just use it to start off, but to actually to have metrics that illustrate that they've adopted it or integrated it into their workflows. What are the characteristics or signals that you see that illustrate that they've actually put it into use and they're consistently putting it into use every time they take whatever it is, the action that your product solves. Retention is very interesting, dynamic. If retention isn't happening, can you suss out a reason for that? Is it a reasonable reason or is it because one of those other factors have dropped down? But measuring retention is relatively easy when you're able to track and look at historic comparisons. And then on the task success, you know, this is the one that's most near and dear to my heart because I like to make sure that I understand, you know, what are the common workflows or the common ways that people are being successful with Market Muse. So if I can see that they're having dramatic success with this one workflow, I know they're not as successful as they could be. They might be super happy. We figured out a way to plug it into our our company and and it works every time. Every, you know, a great example of this with Market Muse because of the legacy history of the product is content optimization. So they have plugged it in, they get their drafts from writers, they improve them, and then they publish. Right. So what I know is if they're having a hundred percent success rate on that process, I need to ensure that I, you know, get them on the horn or somebody does and walk them through all the ways that they can bring that into other stages of the content creation life cycle. I'm trying to do that in application. Absolutely. And trying to continuously give advice on other common workflows and other common use cases that'll be successful. So with task success as, as part of this methodology, it's being conscious that you can have a happy customer. You can have a customer that believes that they're getting the most out of your offering and they're not. And a lot of times, if you're just only looking at data factors and not the whole big picture, um, you're not going to have that creative opportunity identified. So I, I think there's value maybe if we dig a little deeper in each of those components. I mean, mm -hmm. people always ask me like, oh, how do you track happiness, right? Are you doing surveys? <laughs> Are you doing, you know, job completion, right? Yeah. So if we dig into the H through the T, right? right? What are you actually tracking? What's the details behind happiness? Yeah, so I think that the, you know, certainly we could, any product team can always be doing this better. And with happiness, it is a 
I, I always consider it a two-part play, right? It's the, from a customer success perspective, it's those data points, engagement, you know, not engagement maybe with the technology, but also engagement, you know, are, are they willing to get on a phone call if you want to talk to them? It, you know, have they explicitly expressed that their willingness to, you know, to be a champion for your business or to say, to give you a, a case study or to give you uh, data points that illustrate that, you know, hey, ever since I've used Market Muse, my team generates, you know, the average content item generates 6x the ROI than when we didn't, you know, how, how often is that kind of information volunteered outside of a traditional survey? Because surveys have problems. So one big area of study when I was actually in college and, oh gosh, now 20 years ago, I, I did was, was a questionnaire bias. Um, you know, platforms, in-platform in surveys, you know, comprehensive surveys have just natural bias. And so relying only on them is, is very problematic. So what I always like to use for happiness is some way of aggregating the actual interactions, whether it be via email or through uh, personal interactions with customer success with in-platform surveys, uh, NPS-type data points, as well as their successful interactions where we can clearly draw, we know the KPIs that they're looking for and we've achieved them. When you combine all those things, you can get a good guess about happiness. But, you know, happiness is a weird word. I, you know, I'm always looking at this and saying, there are some people I can't, I will never make happy with market news, but I can certainly make them successful every time. So uh, in the end, uh, happiness, take it a little bit of a a grain. I want to make sure that this is illustrating their success too. So. Got it. So I was, I was reading a little bit about your philosophy and approach to the product. Can you take us through the details of that? Oh, yeah, sure. So, and this is really a, a market use specific one a concept that can be abstracted to any business we feel is that, you know, everyone on the team, and this goes from, you know, a sales rep to a, you know, even, you know, someone who is part-time all the way to an engineer or maybe someone that's all they're doing is, is doing natural language generation research. It's, you will be better at your job if you understand the customer's goals. So we're having consistent internal dialogues about common customer goals, common customer problems, common workflow challenges, stories, anecdotes, you know, bubbling up success stories, bubbling up failure stories, frankly, to really get a sense for why is this person, why is this group, why is this company working with us? There's something to it. They're not coming to work with us to use our software. It's not about us. It's about them. And so everyone on the team needs to have, you know, a vocal you know, pledge to want to have a mastery on customer goals because that's what's driving the product marketing. That's a big piece of it. Again, it's to, you know, this is a software platform. So we need to, as a product management organization and, you know, frankly, a product marketing organization, we have to develop internal resources that allow anyone who's working with us as an employee or a customer to become more proficient over time. Whether they come in completely green and they have never even thought about using something like Market Muse, or whether they are an expert, is the information that we're providing allowing them to become more proficient over time? And does the solution itself enable them to be more proficient over time? Also, you know, again, anyone from the organization is going to bubble up 
uh, different tiers of pain points, whether it's, you know, a sales rep hearing it on calls, whether it's customer success rep hearing it from clients, or whether it's, you know, through market feedback or otherwise, everyone should really be thinking about these common pain points, not just the goals, the things that maybe even getting into competitive standpoints, it's the pain point, everyone who uses this other thing, it might not even be a competitive product, but it's adjacent. Maybe it's a content workflow technology, or maybe it's a social media platform. Everyone who uses this type of platform has this pain point. Everyone should know that. Is there something that market news can do to address that pain point or to create a driving issue that would influence somebody to make a purchase decision for market news? And that's kind of that the basis uh, is, is, you know, if you don't care about the customer, if you don't think we need to build materials that allow you to become more proficient or build user, you know, usability focused or user experiences that make you better over time. And you don't care, you know, about those, you know, what drives somebody to make a purchase decision in this space. You're not a fit to be in the product management and frankly, to be in the business of what marketing news is focused on. But I think that's a good stopping point because it's, that's the kind of the first stage of what we're looking for. And that's our philosophy as a business. The other side of that is creating an environment where we want you to be creative. And in order to do so, I need you to understand the product vision. Am I escorting you to know the product vision so that your creativity can shine? And that's something that is very difficult to bring to customers always is to say, you know, because some people are, are just not naturally going to provide more or less feedback. And the product vision may be, you know, very, you know, very different than the way you present yourself to the market. And so I need everybody inside the organization to understand the product vision, why we built it this way. It may not be the way you think is right right now. If you're working and you're commonly hearing this pain point, but explain that to me, explain why you think there's something that should be added to that product vision. And so that you can provide constructive feedback every time this thing looks wrong. You know, this thing's broken, you know, and I, you know, everyone does it, you know, everybody does it. They look at it and they're like, ah, this just doesn't look right. JBLR, right? That doesn't help. You know, it really doesn't help a product market. It can be very frustrating. So how can we provide everyone with the tools and the understanding about how to better provide constructive feedback, comprehensive feedback that isn't a burden. It doesn't take a half hour of your time that you should have been selling. And that's through ways like doing a quick recording, tape it on your phone, jot it down on a note card and send me a picture of it. I don't care in what format it comes as long as it's constructive and it gives me the, you know, the background that I need to make decisions. And, and those are the core six tenets of, of what we do for product management. So, Yeah. So if I was going to summarize that, right, first, you have to have a mastery or a strong understanding of customer goals. Mm-hmm. You know, you as a, a product team have to develop resources that your customers can use to develop proficiency in their system, right? Which is right. this idea that a product is more than just features, but it's the education, the training, the messaging, the announcements, yep. uh, the support around the product. Yep. You know, third, you have to have in the product org awareness of pain points in your prospects and both, you know, external trends and driving internal issues that drive people to product. Then, you know, that's kind of the basis of what I would call understanding. And then there's some of how you operate, right? Clear understanding of vision, ability to share creative ideas and provide that transparency, 
And then when you're providing those ideas, if they're, you know, constructive, comprehensive feedback is ideal, right? Exactly. Is that a good way to summarize? Yeah, I think that that's right, right on. It really gives the, and, and I think setting it up that way also, everyone touches different people. Some people are constantly touching customers. Some people are constantly touching sales prospects or uh, it really allows us to make sure that no matter who it is that you're interacting with, even in, in our case, you know, people who might be in the fundraising sphere or in the SaaS community, it gives you a way of getting that information into the right person's hands every time that this product element needs to be more scalable. Uh, okay, let's get into it because that's not going to be enough uh, right now. So you have an interesting background being in marketing. And one of the things that came up recently was this concept of where product management sits. And we did this survey with Product Collective. And as it turns out, the vast majority of product organizations out there, and this is probably skewed because some of them were very mature organizations, but nonetheless, the vast majority of product organizations out there had product management sitting in the marketing group more than anywhere else. I shouldn't say vast majority, but they were the winner more than, you know, reporting to a business unit and definitely way more than reporting directly to the CEO. So what do you think about product management sitting in marketing? Do you, do you think that's a good idea? I think that, that's a challenging thing. It's a challenging question. I think it, it is something that can skew based on the industry the product is in and where the expertise in the product lies within the organization. I see it very differently. I see that it needs to be separate from sales and it needs to be separate from marketing. I think that there needs to be a product marketing function that almost functions as a health meter of the product too. So if your product marketing professionals can't get information clearly that take on the philosophy we just talked about, if they can't get that and easily turn it into product marketing materials and easily turn into information that marketing is going to use to market the offering, I think that's a signal that there's a hole. So I think that the separation of those two groups, even if it's just in name and responsibilities, whether they're sitting in the org structure or not, I think it gives you a natural set of checks and balances that you're not building a science experiment in the corner that then the product marketing or marketers are going to have to go get the Rosetta Stone and and decipher and turn it into a bunch of mush to generate leads. And so I think that having those things separated builds a level of of both accountability, shared understanding of the level of ease of mastery, the level of ease of proficiency development that's needed in order for the business to thrive. So I think that that's piece one. The other is, I, I, you know, even being a co-founder and kind of a, a subject matter expert on this these specific problems, no matter what the org is, I'm very, very sensitive to the highest level employee or the, you know, whether it's the highest paid employee or not, depending on what style of organization, deciding on all the prioritization decisions. And oftentimes infrastructures are built to, to guide this and make it so that it doesn't seem that way, but everybody kind of nudge, nudge, knows that all the decisions go down to one person. No matter what, you've got to figure out a way to not make that be the case. So some companies, the reason why I mentioned that is some companies try to solve that problem by making product go to marketing. They feel that that gives them the means of it not being a, you know, a founder syndrome type situation where the founder is making all the decisions or a sales making all the decisions. So I think that sometimes that's a defensive strategy of product orgs. 
but I think it should be separated and the product marketers are effectively your checks and balances for your product team. So. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. I, I often talk about how chief product officers or product needs to have a voice at the board table or the and, and the executive table. I think it's essential, especially, you know, in a modern product organization. Whew, we've talked a lot about different <laughs> things today. So let's talk a little bit about the future. You know, what trends do you think you'll see in the next few years that are going to affect the craft of product management? Well, I think a lot of them are are catching up very quickly. I think there has been a swath of software offerings that provide immense amount of interpreted data about applications. Pendo, clearly one of them. Being able to turn around in-application, segmented and constructive feedback inside the application quickly, you know, onboarding playbooks. I think that's a trend you see in a lot of products, yeah, whether it's something like a, a chat bot with a drift or something like Pendo for in-app, in-app applications or something that's specifically focused on analytics, like a full story or, or something like that. This consistent trend is I want to try to walk you through an experience as elegantly as possible in a way I couldn't do easily before without doing a lot of development. So I think that what we'll see from the standpoint of product managers being able to have more access to much more sophisticated, smarter ways of moving fast with respect to feedback, moving fast with respect to what they want to spend their development resources on versus things that they can accomplish to guide future development with these types of in-app approaches. I know we we do a lot of those things. Um, we want to do, and, and, you know, constantly wanting to do more and, and program. I think that the speed at which people can crank out things like wireframes, solutions like Figma or, or otherwise that allow you to quickly mock up a user experience in minutes. You know, how can we take something that used to, you know, I mean, I, I used to take, you know, back in you know 2002 and have to draw out stacks of wireframes. When someone clicks on this button, they're going here. And I had to print those out. And, and it was, you know, that was to show one experience. Now I can't fathom having to build a, you know, 200 page wireframe book for an admin function. One, one click through when there's just so much speed that can be done. I mean, there's something to be said for documentation. However, the speed at which good ideas can be documented today and changes can be made makes you have to fly fast. And I think that what you're going to see in the uh, product management world is newer companies moving faster and causing a lot of pain for established companies because they're able to move faster. And it's almost like where, you know, market news, I, I feel, is a very good example of that. In six to nine months, we completely overhauled and added six completely new applications and a completely new infrastructure in nine months with a team that is much, much smaller than any of our industry cohorts. That's going to be the norm in the next three, five years. You're not going to see these. If you're sitting there talking about your product org as being slow, or it takes you six months, or you need approval and approval processes is three months, those are like negative, such negative signals for a business. I don't think that that's going to, frankly, exist except at the the monolith level in the next, you know, three to five years. So covered a lot today. We had to summarize this, or if you summarize this into a couple words of wisdom to impart to others in product leadership, what would they be? Uh, I, I think that you know the first first one would certainly be empathy, uh, empathy for your coworkers, their roles they're in, 
and your customers and prospects. If you don't have that, if it's about you, you're only going to go so far and not just go so far with your company, but in your organization at some point, that's going to turn into a train wreck for you. And speaking from experience is a core piece. It's tell me if you're speculating. You know, I want I and because because I need I need this this verbal contract that if I'm speculating, you need to know it's speculation, or it's based on my interpretation of a book that I read or what somebody said. So I think the two biggest pieces of, of words of wisdom would be be empathetic and speak from experience, and you'll be a better product manager, and, and, and you can be proud of the product that you build. So let's turn this to you a little bit. What's your favorite product, and why? My favorite product and why that's a, that's a challenging, I'm not allowed to say market muse, right? So uh, <laughs> I, my favorite product and why is challenge. Uh, that's a challenging one. We are, uh, and I, I, I'm not allowed to say Pendo either. It is though. We, we're, we're, we're big fans. We're recent adoption. And it's been something that has been immediately influential in our decisions. That's something that is a win, but I'm, I'll, I'll take it to I'll less uh, shill my own business as, as, as well as Panda. One thing that's really solved the puzzle for me, because I'm not, I've got a lot of, I've got seven or eight things going on in my brain. And uh, uh, I'm in a couple of mastermind groups. And one of them is a productivity expert, a gentleman, a friend of mine named Matt. And he tipped me on a, a product called Boomerang and it's for Gmail. I use it for Gmail. And it allows me to do things that a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, CRM does this or other things. You can, you can twist it into a pretzel to set up a, you know, scenario where your unanswered emails get sent back or you can program orders of operations to send, you know, email sequences in seconds. But for some reason, Boomerang fit my use case. And since I've had that, my email productivity, as I've measured, measured it, I have less situations where I'm like, feeling underwater in, in that. And I have a lot of op- uh, situations where stuff gets boomeranged back to me uh, in my inbox and I'm able to act on it. And I didn't have to do anything to have to get to that decision much more effective than my processes inside CRM. So that's one that is personal for me that has, it may not be for everyone, but if you are a, a slightly disorganized chaotic person with a lot going on and you have the tendency to not exactly hit the mark of your own personal accountability for follow-ups. That's one that's a win. I really love it. It's been a a big change for me. So one final question today, three words to describe yourself. Wow. That's, that's a good question. I would say a reluctant entrepreneur. I know that's two words, (laughs) but I'll say I, I didn't ever think that this would be the path where I would be. But I think that's a good way of, uh, of describing myself. It would be, you know, reluctant entrepreneur and someone who, you know, and, and, and empathetic from a product management perspective. So those would be my three. Empathetic, reluctant entrepreneur. How's that sound? Are you enjoying the journey? Absolutely. It's more difficult than I could have ever imagined. It requires so much of balance. And it's, it's, not, it's not something that comes natural for me. So it's a... It's a it's a constant learning experience. It's a constant mirror check. You know, that's something that you do have to, and it's not just a mirror check for me. Oftentimes I'm walking around with a mirror inside the organization too and saying, Hey, <laughs> you know, look at yourself where you at. But yeah, for me, it's been, uh, I wanted to solve this problem so badly and I feel like I am. 
And once that moment clicked that I knew that I was solving that problem, it all came forward. It was like, oh, I am solving this problem that my entire career I struggled at because nobody had built anything that solved it. And now I'm the one solving it. When that happens, it makes the journey uh, a whole lot of fun. (laughs) Awesome. Well, this was great. Thank you for joining me. All right. Well, thank you again. And I appreciate everything. Look forward to, uh, I'm a a listener as well. So looking forward to uh, future uh, episodes too. Great. All right. Cheers. Thanks again. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.